0: Hello, I'm Robert Sladkin. I am the chair of the Healthcare Practice Group here at Akron, and this is our inaugural Health Law RX Podcast. We are watching these podcasts to provide you with insights and perspectives on the most pressing health law topics and to help you stay informed and engaged on this ever-evolving landscape. I'm joined today by my colleague Jordan Cohen, and today we're going to discuss the end of the public health emergency declaration from the federal government. And what that will mean to the healthcare industry nationwide as we hopefully move from the pandemic in this country to some semblance of normalcy again. So, the first question we need to discuss is how did we get here? Well, on January 27, 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services, under the Trump administration, designated the COVID 19 pandemic as a public health emergency, or PHE. The PHE went into effect on January 31st of that year. Now, by law, a PHE needs to be extended every 90 days, which has happened many times over the past three years. The PHE was most recently extended on January 11, 2023, and shortly after that, on January 30th, the Biden administration announced that it would be ending the public health emergency effective May 11, 2023. Now, in addition to the PHE, there are two other declarations that are worth mentioning here. First is the Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA an authority put in place under the Federal Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act. This allowed the FDA to more quickly approve drugs, treatments, and vaccines to combat COVID, as we are all very well aware. Unlike the PHE, though, the EUA stays in place until the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services terminates it. Now, there's also what's called the PREP Act, or the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, that gives legal immunity to providers that furnish vaccines and treatments that were put into place under the EUA, among other things. By its terms, it is set to expire on October 1st of 2024. Now, in addition to all of that, there are provider-specific exceptions that we should note here. And there have been a number of provider-specific exceptions put into place, some of which ended last year from these declarations has grown a web of financial incentives, operational flexibilities, and other accommodations, many of which will expire at the end of the PHE or at points in the near future after that. Jordan, why don't you start us off by some of the challenges and some of the
1: changes that we'll see. Thanks, Rob. So one of the primary challenges that providers are going to face is economic. Uh, healthcare providers have received a number of financial incentives under the PHE, Take, for example, hospitals. They received a 20% increase in their inpatient reimbursement for COVID patients. They also received financial incentives to improve the newer COVID treatments that they were administering to patients. So once the PHE expires, if there's no other action taken, they're going to see a reduction in their payments. And they're also going to see operational changes in terms of how they deliver care. Uh, under the PHE there were a number of different flexibilities that were granted to providers Uh, there were there was a loosening of supervision requirements as well as loosening of the rules about where providers could furnish their services Uh, it also allowed certain mid-level practitioners to provide services that they typically wouldn't be able to provide themselves and there were Uh, There was a waiver of certain requirements related to things like the number of beds that can be used in certain locations, such as swing beds, uh, and other operational flexibilities that were granted. So this has really allowed hospitals and other providers to remain flexible and dynamic, which makes sense given that they were at the, essentially, ground zero of the pandemic when it unfolded. But and any other change, those flexibilities are going to expire once the PHE expires and facilities and other providers will have to adapt accordingly. And let's not forget that there is a nursing
0: shortage in this country. It's estimated that by 2030, we will need another quarter million nurses in our hospitals and in our provider system nationwide. And it's already stressed a system that is in a very tight labor market. Add to that the fact that much of the current staff had been overworked and had been on the front lines during the depths of the pandemic. So with the flexibilities rolled back and the expiration of the PHE, we could see additional stressors
1: placed on an already stressed industry. So we wanted to pivot now to one of the more remarkable effects of the pandemic and something that actually reduced some of the stress on the system, which was the acceleration of telehealth services. So by one estimate, telehealth increased sixty three-fold over the course of the pandemic and one of the primary drivers as is often the case in the healthcare industry is medicare what medicare does can really impact the entire healthcare industry and what we saw during the pandemic is medicare really loosened the restrictions on providing telehealth services it relaxed restrictions on who can provide the services where individuals can receive them and how they receive them. So by by way of background, under Medicare rules, only those in rural areas can receive telehealth services, but under the PHE, all Medicare enrollees were eligible to receive such services. CMS also permitted telehealth services services to be provided using audio-only technologies, whereas normally uh, such services need to also have video. They also expanded the types of practitioners that could furnish telehealth services. So what we've really seen is a concerted effort by Medicare to ensure that during the pandemic, especially at the height of the pandemic, those that needed services would have access to the services wherever they are. Those flexibilities would be phased out in May. However, the Consolidated Appropriations Act signed by President Biden extended those and other telehealth flexibilities for Medicare through 2024. Now, there are a couple of notable flexibilities that have not yet been extended. The first relates to controlled substances. During the public health emergency, providers have been able to write prescriptions for controlled substances using telemedicine without any in-person encounters. But... Barring any other change, in-person visits will again be required after May. There was just a fact sheet issued by HHS. Uh, there may be rulemaking to extend this flexibility. There was also allowances related to HIPAA. So during the public health emergency, HHS temporarily waived penalties against providers who were using technologies that don't comply with HIPAA. So for example, if a provider was using a platform that didn't have a process in place to get a BAA signed by the parties, that was okay. That will change at the end of the public health emergency and providers will have to ensure that they are fully complying with HIPAA when they are using these technologies. And just as a side note, even with the extension of certain
0: federal telehealth rules, the states are going to obviously continue to play a prominent role in all of this. And that's because providers are licensed by the states and state medical boards and regulatory authorities typically require that a physician or healthcare practitioner be licensed in that state if they're going to be treating patients in that state, whether or not it's in person or it's telehealth. So we could see a patchwork of state rules, some permanently loosening their licensing rules to allow practice across state lines, while others will not. Though there is some room for optimism. The Kaiser Family Foundation asked states about continuing telehealth, and they found that most states have some plan to adopt permanent Medicaid telehealth expansions that will remain in place after the public health emergency, although they expect additional guardrails to be put in place, and those guardrails are going to vary by jurisdiction.
1: We'd like to talk now for a bit about the Stark Law. So, speaking of guardrails being put in place, the end of the public health emergency will reinsert certain Stark Law guardrails that have been temporarily loosened during the pandemic. So, CMS issued blanket waivers for Stark Law compliance that covered arrangements that were related to providing COVID-19 services when those arrangements implicated the stark law so for example we saw a relaxation of the requirements related to group practice locations and to fair market value requirements so for example if a hospital during the pandemic needed to rent space for a covid surge site and it was under fair market value there was an exception for that but those exceptions are going to disappear at the end of the public health emergency and so any providers that took advantage of them are going to have to restructure those arrangements. And when, when we're talking about Stark, it's always worth noting that it's a strict liability statute. So the failure to satisfy an exception is, per se, a violation of the Stark Law. So providers are going to have to be very cognizant uh, that they look at the arrangements they have in place and restructure them to the extent necessary.
0: The next area that we wanted to touch on is coverage for beneficiaries both medicare which jordan will talk about in a minute and medicaid which i want to focus on now which is sort of well the elephant in the room so to speak during the pandemic congress passed legislation that required states to not clear its roles of medicaid enrollees as they do from time to time to to refresh their beneficiary numbers the upshot was that if an individual became ineligible otherwise for medicaid during the pandemic due to uh, an increase in their income or some other event, they weren't taken off the Medicaid rolls, and they continued to be eligible for benefits. So what that led to was a roughly 26% surge in enrollment nationwide in Medicaid. So people will have better access to healthcare during a pandemic. This increased access was particularly crucial for long-term care services, specifically given that the senior citizens in this country were probably the single hardest hit demographic of people during the pandemic. The Consolidated Appropriations Act that we discussed earlier separates Medicaid continuous enrollment provision from the PHD and terminates the continuous enrollment provision at the end of March. So starting April 1st of 2023, states can resume the Medicaid disenrollment process. Experts estimate that between 5 million and 14 million people could lose their Medicaid coverage because the continuous enrollment provision is no longer enforced. As we mentioned earlier in other contexts. States will play a significant role in determining how this plays
1: out. So we wanted to shift for a minute to talk about COVID-related benefits, such as testing, treatment, and vaccines, and how an end to the public health emergency may affect them. So in terms of testing, as I'm sure our listeners know, Medicare beneficiaries have been eligible to receive eight no-cost rapid tests per month through the mail but after May 11th of this year, those with traditional Medicare will no longer receive those free at-home rapid tests. Those with private insurance and Medicare Advantage won't be guaranteed the test as they are now. Rather, the insurers are going to have the flexibility to decide whether to cover them or not. In terms of Medicaid, Medicaid recipients can continue to receive the at-home rapid tests at no cost through September 2024, and after that date, it will likely vary by state Medicaid program. We should note that tests ordered by medical professionals, whether that be rapid or PCR tests, will still be covered after the end of the PHE, but may no longer be free for those on private insurance. The testing will still be free for Medicare beneficiaries, though there could be some cost-sharing for the doctor's visit associated with the testing. There are also going to be changes to treatments. So we saw the release of COVID-specific treatments, including Paxlovid. Medicare beneficiaries may have cost-sharing for certain COVID treatments after May 11th. Medicaid and CHIP, will continue to cover these treatments with no cost sharing into 2024, after which time they may impose utilization requirements and some nominal cost sharing. And we should also talk about vaccines here. And this is one of the areas where legislation has made things relatively permanent. So as long as healthcare providers are furnishing federally purchased vaccines, which most vaccines are, Most vaccines have been uh, purchased um, by the federal government from the pharmaceutical companies, and the providers have been administering those federally purchased vaccines. So as long as those vaccines are being administered, they're going to remain free irrespective of insurance coverage. And that's because providers were actually prohibited by law from charging... Uh, for federally purchased vaccines or for denying vaccines based on in-network or out-of-network status. But when the federal supply of those vaccines runs dry, uh, recent legislation will continue to make these vaccines free of charge to most people on private and public insurance. However, providers may need to account for in-network and out-of-network status at that point. And as Rob mentioned at the top of the episode, we wanted to touch on two different federal actions that are related to the pandemic but are not part of the public health emergency. Rob had mentioned the emergency use authorization declaration under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, and that is allowed to expire at the discretion of the secretary. Uh, If that happens, there'll be a transition period for the tests and treatments that are currently under an EUA. But after that transition period, companies are not going to be able to provide those products unless and until they receive full approval from the FDA. We also have the PrEP Act, which, as Rob mentioned earlier, provides liability protection for those administering COVID vaccines that's not set to expire until 2024 but if it's allowed to expire you could see an increase in lawsuits and other knock-on effects if that liability protection isn't made permanent so as you can see or as you've heard from
0: all of our conversation here the end of the public health emergency while a great sign for our society that we're returning to you know quote unquote the normal side of life It will trigger a host of different concerns for any number of different areas within the healthcare industry going forward. It remains a dynamic area. It is constantly changing, especially given the ability of states to affect many of the benefits that are covered by Medicaid. We wanna thank you for tuning in to our first Health Law Rx podcast. Please check back frequently for additional episodes. Thank you very much.